Good morning, uh, church. Springtime, daylight saving time. You guys made it. I'm impressed. You, uh, it, it has to be one of the most uh, uh, least liked Sundays for pastors and church people uh, because of the loss of an hour. Uh, you know, for most pastors, that means losing out either on another hour of preparation for the sermon or an hour of sleep. And uh, so I know it was, uh, we're all maybe a little bit more tired, a little bit more caffeinated this morning, and, uh, but we're here. Now listen, if someone comes in at 11.30, all right, if someone comes in at 11.30, we are going to lovingly and graciously give them a slow clap, okay, and just start, no, I'm just kidding, don't do that. If they've got the courage to show up at 11.30, let's welcome them in, okay? Uh, but yes, thank you guys for being here. Uh, this morning, we are going to continue to do something a little differently, where we really want to encourage you guys to have a Bible here with you. And so what we did is we brought the Bibles from the, that we have out in the lobby in here, and so we've got them back on those communion tables. So if you ever forget your Bible or don't have a Bible, or you've got too many kids in your hands to be able to, to bring a Bible with you, we will have Bible back there, and so feel free to, feel free to grab those. Uh, Kevin can even come around. If you give him a little look, Kevin will hand deliver a Bible to you. Uh, now, we will still have some of the Bible scripture up on the screen, and, uh, but we, you just, we want you to get more comfortable with the Bible in your hands, and certainly if you use a phone or a, a tablet, that's, that's fine as well. Uh, but the reason that we want to do this is we want you guys to be engaged with the text. We want you to know your Bible well, get used to, to flipping around through it. And certainly if you don't have a Bible or if you bring someone who doesn't have a Bible, um, those Bibles in the back, those are our gifts to you. So you take a Bible with you home. We want everyone to have a Bible. And so uh, uh, if you bring a uh, someone that doesn't have one, please give them uh, one of those Bibles that they can take home. All right. So if you do uh, have your Bible, tablet, something with you, open up to Mark uh, chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And if you've got one of the blue Bibles uh, that was here at church, it's going to be page 936. All right. Now listen, if you don't have one of the Bibles that, are, that the church has provided, I do not know what page number it is on in your Bibles, okay? We did not do that much uh, uh, recon work to figure out everyone's page number. But if you have one of our Bibles here, it's on page 936. We're going to Mark chapter 8 as we continue uh, preaching through the book of Mark. And today we come to a passage. Today we come to a passage that teaches us that Jesus, who we just learned, right, is the Christ. He is the Savior of the world. Today we come to a passage that we learn that he is going to have to suffer. He must suffer. He must be rejected. And he must be killed. And we'll see that Peter and the other disciples still do not understand this. Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus calls them out and says, guys, you are not setting your minds on the things of God. You are setting your mind on the things of men. And so today we must understand the crown and the cross, 
okay? We must understand that Jesus, who is our Savior King, we must also understand that he is going to be our suffering Savior King. And we're going to see that he had to suffer so that we could experience true forgiveness, true love, and true life. Church, the one who created us and redeemed us, he did so at a great cost. And he did this not because he needed anything from us, but he willingly suffered. He willingly was rejected. He willingly offered up his life and was killed. Not out of compulsion or coercion, but, and not because things didn't go according to plan, like not because things didn't really work out. This was his plan A. Out of his free and sovereign love, he willingly suffered, willingly was rejected, and willingly gave up his life. And for us to have any chance of getting our minds around next week's passage, when we get to a very popular passage where Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him, for us to even have a chance at getting our minds around what that means, we're going to have to first today consider our suffering king, the crown and the cross. You see, Peter wanted Jesus to wear the crown without the cross, and Jesus rebuked him. Satan, when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, wanted Jesus to wear the crown without the cross. And we often want to wear a crown without taking up our cross. And let's pray this morning and ask God to help us behold our suffering king and ask him for, help, for his help to follow after him. So let's pray. Pray with me and we'll jump into the text. Father God, we do thank you that you freely and sovereignly have set your affections on us. You have loved us. You have redeemed us. You have saved us. And we know that our redemption, it came at a great cost. Help us not treat your forgiveness or your love or the life we can now live. Help us not treat it lightly or flippantly, but help us feel the weight that our redemption, our rescue, it cost something. And so, Father, we ask for the Spirit to speak to our hearts. May your word not return void. May I get out of the way. And may it be your truth that goes forth. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, look with me at Mark 8, verse 31. Mark 8, verse 31. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now the Son of Man was the title that Jesus used most often for himself. The most common title that other people gave to Jesus was the Christ, right? Or the other word for the Messiah, the Rescuer, the King that's going to come make all things right. But, but when Jesus referred to himself, he often called himself the Son of Man. And remember what he's meaning when he's using this. When he's calling himself the Son of Man, he, number one, he is relating to humanity. He is, he is declaring that he is fully man. 
He is the Son of God, so we know he's fully God, but he's also saying that he's the Son of Man. He is fully man. And, and, and Dad talked about this last week, right, that, God, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And so by him using the title Son of Man, he is relating to humanity. He's fully man. He can be our representative. But it's also referring to a title for the Messiah. It's a reference to the prophecy of Daniel 7. And don't turn there, but just follow on the screen or hear these words. Daniel had a vision, and in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and is kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And by Jesus using this title, the Son of Man, Jesus, yes, is relating himself to humanity, humanity, recognizing he's fully God and fully man, that he is God who is put on flesh, but he's also referencing that he is the Messiah. He is this coming king that is going to make all things right. He is, he is a, a king of a kingdom that, has, that will be, that go on for eternity. Look back at Mark 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now leading up to this verse, you'll remember that we had just had a breakthrough with the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is because we have started to see that God is slowly but surely giving them sight to see Jesus in all his glory for who he really is. Because remember where they started, right? They started with being guys around Jesus. Jesus feeds thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread, a few small fish, and then they get in a boat with him, and they're worried that they don't have enough bread, right? And it happened twice. Like, they saw Jesus feed thousands of people twice. They get in the boat They're worried they don't have enough bread, okay? That's where they're starting out. And then we saw that Jesus healed a blind man in two stages, right? He kind of slowly but surely was opening up this man's eyes to see, have clear vision. And then we saw Jesus ask his disciples a couple weeks ago, he said, who do you say that I am? Because some thought that he was John the Baptist, some thought he was Elijah, some thought he was just another, another prophet or another teacher, but he wanted to know his, to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And we saw the last time we preached in, in the book of Mark that Peter's eyes are opened by the Father and he says, you are the Christ. It's a big turning point in the book of Mark. Here we have the first human declaration of who Jesus is. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the king we've been waiting for to make all things right. And so we can praise God that that Peter and any of us who can say that, that Jesus is the Christ, that God in the flesh, he's the savior of the world, that that we have been given eyes to, to see, that we've been given vision that can see Jesus for who he really is. And so while Peter's view of Jesus has now started to become clear, it's still a little fuzzy. He sees Jesus for who he is, but it is unclear to him as to what Jesus has come to do. It's still blurry. He knows that Jesus is the king who's going to defeat their enemies, but he's not quite sure how this is going to play out and who even those ultimate enemies really are. 
And Jesus is trying to explain to them and to us that he's not going to save and redeem by taking power by force. He hasn't come to, leave a, to, to lead a military army to set up a new government. That wasn't what his initial first time here on earth, his ministry was to do. He wasn't going to take power by force. Jesus is trying to explain, no, he's going to willingly give up his power. The life and mission of Jesus while here on earth was not going to be defined by military success or victory, but instead was going to be defined by suffering, rejection, and death. He says that he must suffer. He must be rejected. And he must be killed. This would not have made sense to the disciples. And it doesn't even always make sense to us either because this is not what they were expecting from the Messiah, the one that they'd been waiting for. And Jesus is trying to explain to them that, listen, the Messiah, the Christ, is going to have to suffer to be rejected by the Jewish religious authorities and ultimately be killed. But three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. Now listen to what's not being said. What's not being said, Jesus is not saying that he might have to suffer or be killed. He's not saying that it was a possibility that this might happen if things didn't go according to plan. No, Jesus is telling them this is plan A. This must happen. Evil men will be allowed to torture me. They will reject me. They will kill me. And this is all a part of the plan A of God to redeem his people and restore his world. God is going to allow evil what he hates. God is going to allow evil to happen to accomplish what he loves. Which is how he often works. Now, he's not the author of evil. He's not morally responsible for evil. But this is plan A for redemption. He's not just reacting to what the Pharisees and the religious leaders might do. He's saying this must happen. And just like the story that Joseph foreshadowed to us in the Old Testament, what the religious leaders of that day meant for evil, God meant for good. And verse 32 says that he said this plainly to them. He said this plainly, right? No more parables, no more stories. He's not giving them like little rhymes and riddles like they're having to try to figure this thing out. He said this to them plainly. They've understood who he is, but now they are grappling with what he must do. Look back at Mark 8, verse 32. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Okay, this news that the king they've been waiting for is going to have to be a suffering king. That news is really rocking Peter's world right now, okay? Because he has just correctly identified Jesus as the Christ. And now Jesus is telling him that he's going to have to die. That he's going to have to suffer. That he's going to have to be rejected. And it's, it's, it's blowing his mind because Peter and the, and the disciples understood from the Old Testament that the Messiah would be this great king. He would be the great shepherd. He would be a redeemer. 
But you see, they had overlooked passages like Isaiah 52 and 53 and Psalm 22 that explained he would have to be a suffering servant. And so Peter, thinking that there's no way this is how it's going to go down, and probably even thinking to himself, there's no way I'm going to let this happen to the Messiah, the Christ. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. Now, this is strong language, okay? This is strong language. This isn't just like Peter questioning him, like, uh, that doesn't seem, you know, that's not really lining up to me, Jesus. Can we talk about this? I've got some questions. This is strong language. This is language that was used in rebuking demons, okay? This wasn't just like a uh, 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 passive like question or just confusion. This was strong language. Peter started to rebuke Jesus. Mark 8, verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples... He rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now listen, Peter has been on a little bit of an emotional roller coaster with Jesus. He just declared him the Christ, and in Matthew's account, that's when kind of Jesus goes into, you know, blessed are you, Peter, on this rock I'm going to build my church. And now, a few verses later, he's saying, Get behind me, Satan. This is a strong rebuke that Jesus gives to him. But it's not as if Jesus is actually calling him Satan. It's not as if Jesus actually believes that Peter is the devil. But essentially what what is happening is Peter is presenting the same sort of temptation that Satan brought to Jesus in the wilderness. It's the cross without the crown. Or, sorry, it's the crown without the cross. It's the same thing that the enemy tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. And I want you to see that. So if you do have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 4. It's just a book uh, to the left in your Bibles. If you've got one of the church Bibles, it's page 897. And we're going to Mark, or sorry, Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. And it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. You see, Satan was trying to offer him a cheap way to glory. Satan was trying to give Jesus the crown before the cross. 
Satan knows that the cross and the resurrection is going to be his defeat. And so maybe he can tempt Jesus with the crown and, and these earthly kingdoms before he gets to the cross. And so Jesus' rebuke of Peter, the same sort of thing is happening here. The same thing that we are often tempted with as well. There is a, there is a cheap way to the crown without the cross. And Jesus knows that he must go to the cross. He must. It's not as if, now, now listen, it, it's not as if God had to save anyone, okay? He doesn't. He doesn't owe humanity anything, right? We have rebelled against him. We have committed cosmic treason against him. But out of his goodness and his freeness of God's love, he has chosen to save a people. And therefore, Jesus knows in order to accomplish redemption, sins must be atoned for on the cross. He must go to the cross. And Jesus rebukes Peter for thinking about this cheap way to glory, setting his mind on the things of men, the crown before the cross. He says to Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Go ahead and turn back to Mark 8. Mark 8. To set your mind on the things of God is to understand that he must suffer, he must be rejected, and he must be killed. But I mean, did he really have to suffer? I mean, couldn't Jesus have just kind of like died of old age? Couldn't he just have maybe fallen off of cli a cliff and been the perfect sacrifice that way? Like, couldn't he have atoned for the sins of his people in some other way? No, if God was out of his free and sovereign love going to save, it was necessary that Christ should suffer. Our text says that he must suffer. And not just die, but he must be killed. Luke 24, 26. It says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? It was necessary to atone for the sins of his people. He must suffer. He must be rejected. And he must be killed. He had to suffer. He had to be rejected. And he had to be killed so that we could be healed. So that we could be healed. Listen, church, the sins that we have committed against God and the sin that others have committed against us has left deep wounds on our hearts. And our hearts need to be healed from sin. He had to suffer so that we could experience healing for our hearts, so that we could experience true forgiveness, true love, and true life. Isaiah spoke of this suffering servant, a servant, excuse me, and just listen to this text from Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 12. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, 
yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We are healed. Now, I specifically, just in the time remaining this morning, I, w- I, want to, I want to look at how our hearts are healed and how his suffering and rejection and his death, how it does lead us to be able to experience true forgiveness, true love, and true life. We're going to look at those three things in our time remaining. Jesus must suffer in order that true forgiveness can be experienced and our wounds can be healed. Here's something we don't often think about forgiveness. Forgiveness involves suffering. Forgiveness involves suffering. Now, this might be a silly example, but let's say you come over to my house, and let's say you accidentally run over the basketball hoop that is in our driveway. Yeah. Which, if you know me and you know my boys, like that would be a, a pretty big deal, actually. If you ran over uh, our basketball hoop, we'd be very uh, sad about that. And uh, I'm even right now thinking about it, getting a little bummed out about the, the possibility of that happening. Uh, but listen, if you ran over our basketball hoop, two things would happen. I either would make you pay for that, or, number two, I can forgive you. I can forgive you. Now, don't get me wrong, after I had gotten done crying and and weeping and a few days of mourning, I would likely forgive you, okay? I would. I would not make you pay. But that doesn't mean that someone doesn't have to pay. By me forgiving you and not making you pay, I would essentially be saying, I will take the cost upon myself. I will pay for it to be fixed or I will either lose out on that money that I paid when I purchased the hoop. Okay, so are you with me so far? You run down my hoop, either you pay, or I forgive you and I absorb the cost. The debt that was created by this wrongdoing does not magically go away. Someone pays the debt. Now you see, because God is infinitely and perfectly holy, any wrongdoing against him, the cosmic treason that we have committed against him has created an infinite debt that rightly deserves punishment and wrath. But Jesus, the Son of Man, as our representative, allowed himself to have his blood shed to pay the debt we owed. Hebrews 9:22 says indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins you see true forgiveness involves suffering and when we forget that Jesus had to suffer. He had to be rejected. He had to be killed so that we could be forgiven. When we forget that, we treat the forgiveness of God like he just flippantly forgives us. 
right? Like when you force your kids to apologize and forgive one another, right? One says, I'm sorry. One says, I forgive you and whatever, you know? That's how when we forget the sufferings of Christ, that is how we treat the forgiveness of God. Oh, I'm sorry, God. Oh, I forgive you. Okay. And we move on without really feeling the weight of what that forgiveness costs. We forget that in order to be forgiven, in order for forgiveness to be possible, suffering had to happen. A debt had to be absorbed. Church, true forgiveness involves suffering. It requires someone to absorb a debt that was created by wrongdoing. Jesus had to suffer, be rejected, and killed so that we could experience true forgiveness. He suffered and absorbed the debt that we owed so that we could be forgiven. Don't take his forgiveness lightly. When we offer forgiveness through Christ, that is a big deal. There was a great cost that was paid. It might be free to us, but someone paid that cost. It was our Savior, Jesus. Well, not only did he have to suffer, have to be rejected, have to be killed so that we might experience true forgiveness, but he had to suffer and be rejected and killed so that we might experience true love. True love. Romans 5, verses 7 through 8. It says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so I want to talk to you for a sec about false love and true love. False love and true love. A theologian named William Vanstone, he wrote a book called Love's Endeavor, Love's Expense. And in the book, he gives definitions of false love and true love. So, okay, in false love, in false love, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness. Your love is conditional in false love. You give it only as long as that person is affirming you and meeting your needs. False love is also non-vulnerable. You hold back so that you can cut your losses if necessary. Our world, our culture, our friends, our family, we know a lot about what false love is. False love. Use the other person to fulfill your own happiness. But now true love. What's true love? In true love, your aim is to spend yourself and use yourself for the happiness of the other because your greatest joy is that person's joy. Therefore, your affection and true love is unconditional. You give it regardless of whether your loved one is meeting your needs. And true love is vulnerable. You spend everything. You hold nothing back. You give it all away. So false love, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness. It's conditional, right? Only if that person's kind of meeting your needs. And it's non-vulnerable. But true love, your aim's to spend yourself for the happiness of the other. Your joy is, is their joy. 
Therefore, your affection is unconditional. You give it regardless, and it's vulnerable. You empty yourself. You, you throw yourself out there. But then Vanstone in his book, he says, the surprising thing about our reality is this, okay? This is humanity's real problem, is that nobody is actually fully capable of giving true love. We desperately long for true love, right? It's almost like we know we were created for this. We desire to experience it, but in our own power, we cannot perfectly give it. Now, there are some who certainly, you know, are, are more on the end of the spectrum of true love, of just being selfless and, and loving unconditionally. But, but all of us, because of our humanity, there's always a little bit of some selfishness involved in, in our love that we give. But in the end, humanity has this need and this desire for true love. But what happens in life is that we continually fail one another in giving this true love that we all so deeply long for. And so what we need, church, what we need is we need there to be someone who can love us who doesn't need anything from us. Humanity's need and longing for love is ultimately desiring a love from a being, from a person who can love us, who doesn't need us at all. Now listen, I'll illustrate this a little bit more. So uh, Britt and I, on occasion, we watch uh, the show The Bachelor, which it got, wow, yeah, it kind of got... Really quiet and some nervous laughs there, all right? Before you guys start judging me, okay, all right, I watch it to be a loving and supportive husband, and Britt's not here to defend herself. So, uh, but no, this is how I explain it. Like when you're flipping through, first of all, we do not recommend it to anyone, okay? It's, 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 it's yeah, we're not recommending or endorsing it. But what it is, it's, it's this, okay? It's as you're flipping through trying to find something to watch, it's like a car accident that you can't take your eyes off of, right? So even if you guys don't watch the show, you know what it's like to drive down the highway, see a really bad accident, and you just can't help but like, like I don't want to watch it, but I kind of have to watch and just see what happens. And so that's how we feel the show is for us. You're flipping through. You're like, oh, a train wreck. Like, this is going to be a disaster. We have to watch it. There's no way this is how men and women were designed to interact with one another. But I can't help but study humanity and just see what falls out from all this, okay? It's a great opportunity to study humanity, okay? I, I really think this, okay? Because as, as The Bachelor breaks up with one of the girls— and you know how the breakups go, okay? This is, for those of you that haven't seen it, this is how it goes, okay? He sits down with one of the girls, like one-on-one -on -one time, and she says, I, I'm falling in love with you. And he says, I really appreciate you saying that. <laughs> Just an FYI relationship advice, if you tell someone you love them, and they say, I appreciate you saying that, it's not headed in the direction you want it to be headed, okay? And so he says, I appreciate you saying that. They end up breaking up. He kind of flips it, you know, just saying, well, I want you to find someone better than me and kind of makes it seem like she's breaking up with him. And then, and then they break up. But then the study of humanity that I like the most is then in the limo after the breakup, and she's, it's actually really heartbreaking. You, uh, typically, uh, uh, they're in tears, they're crying, and they're kind of then just talking one-on-one -on -one with the camera. 
And, and what I find interesting is that they all say things a little bit differently using different words, different phrases, but at the heart of it, they say the same thing. And this is what's heartbreaking for Christians who've experienced the true love of God, okay? Because at the heart of it, what they are saying is that I just want to be loved unconditionally. I just want someone I can be vulnerable with that's not going to hurt me. I just want someone who is going to pour themselves out for me. They all say the same thing. There's this deep longing in all of humanity. And what are they longing for? They want true love, but they haven't found anyone capable of giving it yet. And isn't this what we all desire? True love and not false love. We desire someone that will love us and not use us. But in order for someone to truly love us without even a hint of using us, there has to be someone who loves us who doesn't need us at all. And church, this is why the love of God changes everything. It is true love from the one who is self-existent, who is self-sufficient, who is perfectly pure and good, who's not needing anything from us, and who has poured out himself for us. He had to suffer. He had to be rejected. He had to be killed so that you would get a taste of his love. He poured himself out for us so that we might experience true love and joy in him. It's a love that is unconditional. There is nothing that you could do that would make God love you more, and there is nothing that you could do that would make God love you less. And that is a beautiful truth that frees you to live life with great joy. He was willingly rejected so that we might be lovingly welcomed into the family of God. 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And when we experience this kind of love, the false love that you have loved others with, it starts to fade away and you start loving others with this kind of love. 1 John four nineteen says, we love because he first loved us. So now as believers... We've got a chance. We've got some empowerment. We've got an opportunity to love people like Jesus has loved us. Unconditionally. Being vulnerable. Not using them for our own happiness, but pouring ourselves out for them. This is the kind of love that we are called to love one another with. He had to suffer so that we could experience true forgiveness, true love, and true life, true life. 
Jesus had to suffer. He had to be rejected. He had to be killed. And then three days later, he had to rise again so that we might experience true life. You see, we often don't experience true life because of fear. Okay? We are a fearful people. And our greatest fear, if we really boil it down to what, what is kind of our greatest fear, most people would say public speaking or spiders, but really at the end of it, our greatest fear is death. Our greatest fear is death. But hear these words from Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If you live your life not by faith but out of fear, you will live a life of lifetime slavery. But the good news is Jesus died, he suffered, he was rejected, he rose so that we might be redeemed and delivered from the fear of death. The fear of death is what, is what our worldly kind of powers, corrupt governments, uh, corrupt institutions, it's what they use to make people afraid and kind of coerce them into doing what they want to do, right? They threaten death on them. They threaten Jesus with death if he did not, you know, start doing things differently. They threatened his disciples and his apostles and all his followers with death. It's what persecutors of Christian to, Christians today, they threaten our brothers and sisters with death if they won't renounce the name of Jesus. And fear of death, fear of death has kept Christians from going where God calls them. Fear of death causes us to live seemingly safe, comfortable, calculated lives. But Jesus had to suffer, had to be rejected, had to be killed, and had to rise from the dead so that we could be delivered from the fear of death and experience true life. Jesus was victorious over Satan's sin and death so that the sting of death might be taken away and we might truly live by faith and not by fear. Oh, what a life that would be to live where there's no fear of death. That is the life, brother and sister, that we get to live. 1 Corinthians 15. It's a common, a common well-known verse. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so listen, when our suffering king went to the cross and triumphantly rose from the dead, it was, as, it was as if he was like a loving father who doesn't want his kids to get stung by a bee and he grabs the bee and he allows the bee to sting himself in the hand so that that bee won't have a stinger any longer. And he lets the bee go. And his kids... We have no fear of that bee any longer. Physical death is still a reality, but it's got no stinger. No more fear of death. No more sting. And listen, when you stop fearing death, 
that is when you will start experiencing true life. So in closing, Jesus had to suffer so that we could experience true forgiveness, true love, and true life. Jesus is our suffering Savior. He would not take the crown before the cross. He would not take the cheap way to glory. And if Jesus was a suffering servant, what does that mean for us as his disciples? And this is what we're going to look at next week as Jesus is going to tell us that if anyone would come after him, he must deny himself and take up his cross. Let's pray.